Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are so, so happy you're here. This Wednesday night for our Bible study, we heard from Brother McLaughlin. He's continuing his series on the power of his name. This is such a powerful series, and we hope you enjoy couple of things that I would like to do tonight is I'm going to not introduce you to what's called the five-point theological diagram, but I am going to emphasize this. I have, if you've been here for a little bit, you've seen this graph and this slide that's going to come up. I want to take a look at it again because I want to focus on biblical theology. What I'm going to do is I'm going to provide um, a couple of quotes from historical theologians in commentaries that you would read today that are providing historical theology that does not align with biblical theology. And so since we have that slide up, I want you to take a look at it and notice what's in the center and what's in the middle. What is that? It's the central the central focus of the five points of theology is biblical theology. From biblical theology, a natural outflow occurs for the Bible student. If you are studying the Bible, you do not want to begin studying the Bible from historical theology. You do not want to begin with even exegetical theology. And you do not want to begin with systematic nor practical theology. You've got to start with the Bible. You have to start right here. From the Bible, from the authority of Scripture, you enter into each one of these theologies. There is a a grave danger if we begin with historical theology. Historical theology would be considered from the apostolic age to the post-apostolic age to the Renaissance age to the Enlightenment era and then ultimately to modern time. Here's what happens. People will take a passage and they will establish entire creeds such as the Nicene Creed and a Trinitarian doctrine and uh, the the Athanasian creed that supported a Trinitarian doctrine. So then essentially what happens when you get all of this historical theology, you get people writing books, you get people writing commentaries that will be diabolically opposed to biblical theology. So so if you don't have a strong lens of the Bible and what the Bible says specifically tonight about the Godhead, then it's easy to pick up a book. It's easy even to scroll through Blue Letter Bible. 
It's easy to take a look at some of the passages that are really oneness passages, but because of historical theology and because they have to hold tenaciously to a Trinitarian doctrine, they will rest the scriptures to one's own destruction. And, and so if you're not well versed in doctrine, if you're not well versed in the Godhead, it will be very easy to read it and they make sense in what they're saying in the commentaries and in the books and you can have one little seed of error planted inside of you and that thing can take root and all of a sudden 15 years later it springs forth like a tree in someone's life. I could show you a video right now of an individual who embraced oneness and when I tell you he could, he could provide an eloquent discourse on the oneness back in the day. But because of compromise, I have a video of him in his pulpit where he is literally saying, um, I come from a oneness background and they in their zeal. Um, and, he, and he's going through and, and, and almost debunking oneness and he embraces Trinitarianism. The, one of the problems with this embracing of Trinitarianism is he, his preface is that he was reading a book and as he was reading a book about Trinitarianism and so his belief system now or the change of his belief system now is coming through books that he's reading. That would be historical theology. Nothing wrong with historical theology if it aligns with the center biblical theology. Notice biblical theology, the solid line, is informing all of the other theologies. The problem is when you take historical theology, put it in the center, take biblical theology, put it up to the top left, and allow historical theology to inform biblical theology. That's where error comes from. And so tonight, what I would like to do is walk through a couple of points in historical theology from the Bible Knowledge Commentary and the Biblical Exposition Commentary that they make on Isaiah 9 and 6 about the Everlasting Father. And then what I will do from there is go to Biblical Theology and I will go through tons of Scripture tonight that supports the oneness of God, Jesus Christ, as the Everlasting Father. He even makes that claim about Himself. I will then conclude with a couple of um, quotes from David Bernard, um, Frank Stagg, and Chriswell. Actually, those were actually Trinitarianism, uh, Trinitarian people who supported the oneness. So that's my objective tonight. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to lead us and guide us. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness. And we thank you for the truth. Lord, thank you for leading me to the Jesus Church in Victoria, Texas, February 23rd, 1989, to a church that was preaching and teaching biblical theology, where the revelation of who you are, the mighty God in Christ, came to me. And I was baptized in your glorious name. And I had every addiction broken and every sin broken and the shackles of sin and dysfunction were broken off of me because of the embracing of the truth. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. I thank you for the distinct truth that's found only in you. Oh God of heaven, we exalt your name tonight. We love you, Lord. We give you praise. Can we do that together? 
I mean, if the truth has set you free, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have literally been set free by biblical theology. You came in error and truth set you free, broke the shackles of error off of you. Oh God, we have every right to give Him praise. We need to give Him praise. Don't get sterile and stale in our Bible study. Let it come alive. The letter kills, but the Spirit giveth life. Yes, let the study of the Bible kill this flesh, but let, the, let us study ourselves to death, but pray ourselves back to life. You don't, you don't want to be that kind of Bible student that you study so much that you become so, so sterile in your worship. Make sure that there's always prayer. You can be seated. So Isaiah 9, 6, specifically Everlasting Father. According to the authors of the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I quote, many people are puzzled by the title Everlasting Father because the Messiah, God's Son, is distinguished in the Trinity from God the Father. And, and I'm still quoting, how can the Son be the Father? And I'm continuing to quote, several things must be noted in this regard. First, the Messiah being the second person of the Trinity is in his essence God. Therefore, he has all the attributes of God, including eternality. And, and he continues, and he continues. Since God is one, parentheses, even though he exists in three persons. Okay, back up. Remove historical theology. Remove every other theology and just stick with the Bible. Just stick with the one verse that we read in Isaiah 9 and 6 to refute what this scholar is saying. Just stick with biblical theology. I'm going to read what he said again and watch the logical inconsistency that he talks about here. Pick it up. If you'll read, if you'll read oneness scriptures... Oneness scriptures will literally become a lens for you so that if any error comes into you, it has to immediately deal with the oneness verses inside of you, thus being rejected immediately as the scriptures are misinterpreted, um, even by scholars, okay? You don't have to have a PhD to interpret the Bible. You don't have to be all of that. And just because they have these little initials behind their name, Jesus made it to where a 12-year-old can pick up the Bible, read it, and have a grasp of this word and say, I'm sorry, the Bible says that the Son is also the everlasting Father. So they are one and the same. They cannot be one and the same in one sense and separate persons in another sense. Otherwise, that's a logical fallacy and we're dead in the water. So let's take a look at it. Let me, I'm going to read you what he says again. If you, if you were to go into a commentary, and this particular commentary is the Bible knowledge commentary. This is what they say about this particular verse. Since God is one. Good, we're good there. But they felt the necessity 
to put it in parentheses, even though he exists in three persons. How can you be one in three persons at the same time? They go on to say the Messiah is God. Second, the title Everlasting Father is an idiom used to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, not relationship to other members in the Trinity. Second quote, this is Warren Wiersbe, and Warren Wiersbe has written the Bible exposition commentary, this is the Old Testament. This is what he says, Everlasting Father does not suggest that the Son is also the Father. For each person in the Godhead is distinct. Okay, so let's pause right there. Simply, what does Isaiah 9 and 6 say? Child born, son given, would be everlasting father. So how can you say that the son is not also the everlasting father if the prophet Isaiah plainly, very simply and plainly declared that? Clearly. So, so what you have to do, and, and I can tell you what, if we had a lot of time, what I would have done is I would have pulled up the Nicene Creed and I would also have pulled up the, the Athanasian Creed and we would have read through each one of those creeds together so that you could take historical theology and look at where, the, where they deviated and then we would take biblical theology and put it side by side so that we could, in a positive way, deconstruct the error. You're working with me. I didn't have enough time to do that, so I'm not even going to present those creeds. But, but if you're familiar with these creeds, then when you look at these commentaries and you read books and you're looking at these scholars, you recognize very clearly what they are quoting per the creed. And so you can almost go back to that creed and say, well, this is why Warren Wiersbe just said that. Because you can actually look at the creed and take it line by line. This is one of the things that we have the students do is actually go line by line to deconstruct the creeds from historical theology and then prove biblical theology from a oneness perspective. And, and so I don't have enough time to go through all of that, but, but this is what we're talking about. And this is what historical theology does divorced from biblical theology. You cannot take historical theology, put it in the center of that diagram, and allow it to inform and change the Bible. You with me? So I continue on with what Warren Wiersbe says about this particular passage in that one uh, phrase. He continues, Father of eternity is a better translation than everlasting father. This is Wiersbe. Among the Jews, the word father means originator or source. And I'm still quoting it. If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ. He is the father of eternity. Do you see how he, in that same one paragraph, he contradicts himself? In one sense, he's saying he's not the father of eternity, but he said if you want anything uh, from its source throughout all eternity, go to Jesus Christ. He is the father of eternity. Typically, what happens here, and, and you can look at it if you, were, if you were breaking this down, 
typically what's happening is you can almost see the mind of the person vacillating between Isaiah 9-6, biblical theology, and then jumping over and almost saying, yet I cannot be, I cannot be uh, disloyal to the creeds. And so somewhere in my terminology, in my semantics, I'm going to have to try to please both worlds, and hopefully my readers, both worlds will be pleased. I'm just going to tell you, when anyone is teaching, preaching, or writing, and you are vacillating by going back and forth saying, well, I hope this crowd will be pleased with what I'm saying, but I'm going to say it in such a way that this crowd can be pleased as well, so when you walk away, no one really knows what you believe. That's not the approach that we can take with the Bible, especially in this day and age. If you are oneness, be oneness through and through. And when we are oneness, not because of Pentecostalism, but because the Bible is a monotheistic book. It is a one God book. Take away all denominations. If you study the Bible, it is a one God book. 66 books in the Bible and you will see one God emerging. So these are, these are some historical theology statements based on Isaiah 9 and 6. Now, let's take a look at biblical theology. Jesus claimed, this is Jesus' words, Jesus claimed to be the I Am of the Old Testament, which in essence is declaring to be the Father. When we are speaking in terms of the I am of the Old Testament, we're also speaking of the Father. So when Jesus made the seven I am statements that we learned about last week, he was declaring to be the Father. Isaiah claimed the doctrinal fact that the child born and son given would also be the mighty God and would also be the everlasting Father. The prophet Malachi clearly stated that there is only one Father and that there is only one God. According to Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Jesus Christ removed all doubt when he was in conversation with Thomas and Philip. And he said, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have what? Seen who? Is it the Father? He's talking specifically about the I am. And so, let's go back. Since God is one, this is, this is Bible knowledge. Since God is one, even though he exists in three persons, the title Everlasting Father is an idiom to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. Wearsby said, the Everlasting Father does not suggest that the Son is also the Father. That's Wearsby. What is Jesus saying? Jesus said to Philip and to Thomas, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. It's like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Are you claiming to be Yahweh? 
And so Philip is scratching his head. They did not think in terms. These are Jews. They did not think in terms of more than one God. That was polytheism. That would be paganism. That would be blasphemy. And so he's saying, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? That is biblical theology that refutes historical theology. Amen. And I don't know how you feel, but I didn't, I wasn't raised in this. And so when all of this was revealed to me in the apostolic church and through one is teaching from my pastor, and I looked at that and it, and it was like, and it was like a stripping away, a stripping away, a stripping away. And I could literally feel the error leaving my life, the error leaving my life, the error leaving my life. And in the middle of doctrinal teaching and preaching, you might see me get up and run the aisles. And then they were like, my God, what's this new convert doing? Why is Carl McLaughlin running the aisles? I'll tell you why. When the the truth comes to you and it sets you free. Not only does it set you free from error, but when you embrace that truth, there are, there are outcomes when you embrace the truth. Not only does it get rid of doctrinal error, it gets rid of moral error. It gets rid of ethical error. When you embrace the, you can't embrace the oneness of doctrine without embracing oneness of morality and oneness of ethics. You've got to hold on. When you get the truth, you get the truth in every area of your life. It starts with Jesus Christ as God. Oneness. But then there is a true oneness among the believers. There's a true oneness in a marriage. There's a true oneness between you and the Lord. Are you with me? And by virtue of that loving relationship, the outcome is I want to be a moral man. Because if I can be a moral man, it will reflect God coming in flesh and that God coming in flesh, I embrace his teaching. And his teaching causes me to be a moral being. And by virtue of being that moral being, somebody says, hey, how come you, how come you live your life that way? Well, I'm glad you asked me. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Can we clap our hands and give him praise? I'm telling you, the truth will set you free. And as you embrace the truth, you embrace the teachings of truth. And as you apply, as you apply that truth, that would, that would, I don't know, you don't have to go back to that, but when you go down into that bottom right-hand corner was practical theology. This can also be called applied theology. This is the way that we're going to practically live this thing out. And so we're talking about the oneness of God, and we're talking about the truth in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, that's all good and well, but when you drive out of here in your vehicle, how do you apply that every day to your life? It's like, okay, so give me the exegesis of the scripture and talk to me about systematic. But at the end of the day, a lot of people aren't even going to get all that. When you, when you put your shoes on in the morning and you go to work and you go to school and you go to college or wherever you are, how morally do you apply that theology that you say you embrace? Because if you're not truly one with your spouse, if you're not truly one with your family, if you're not truly one with the body of Christ, then are you oneness? There, there's a disconnect, and so it's really hard for me to swallow your doctrine if I can't swallow your immoral lifestyle. 
Continuing in biblical theology, if there is only one God, and that God is the Father, according to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, and if Jesus is God, then it logically follows that Jesus is the visible revelation of the Father. James 2 and 18, even the devils understand this. Like even the demonic, the fallen angels understand this. James 2, 18, you believe that there is one God? You do well. The demons believe and tremble. They even recognize in the spirit realm they know there's one God. God is absolutely and indivisibly one. There are no essential distinctions or divisions in his eternal nature. All the names and titles of the deity, such as Elohim, we've talked about, Yahweh, we've talked about, Adonai, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, refer to the one and same being. Or, in Trinitarian terminology, to one person. Any plurality associated with God is only a plurality of his attributes, his titles, roles, manifestations, or his relationships to mankind. This is the historic position of Judaism. Judaism, Christianity, look, Christianity would not even be here would it not have been for Judaism. So Christianity was birthed out. Jesus Christ, or the law, was a schoolmaster that led us to Jesus Christ. You had to have Judaism to arrive at Christianity. Christianity, Judaism is the mother or the queen of Christianity. And so Christianity was born out of this. So think about that for a minute. Judaism is a oneness belief system. That, in fact, that's why they won't embrace Christianity today in the, the Trinitarian form of Christianity because they're saying, wait a minute, we don't believe that there's more than one God. So Judaism only believed in one God. If Christianity was to be born out of Judaism, you cannot embrace more than one God and reflect where you're coming from. And so Christianity must hold tenaciously to this one God. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. A oneness view of the Godhead does not deny the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost. Absolutely not. Please, please, if you come from Calvary Pentecostal Church, do not ever say you deny Father, Son, or Holy Ghost. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as roles, manifestations of this one God. He's Father in creation. He's Son in redemption. He's Holy Ghost in regeneration. But these are not three distinct persons. It's one God with three distinct roles in relating to mankind differently. The title Father refers to God's role as Father of all creation, Father of the only begotten Son, and Father of every born-again believer. The title Son refers to God's incarnation. So that's one of the distinct differences. When you're speaking of Son, you're only talking about incarnation forward. There was not a pre-existent or prior to incarnation Son that 
we believe and the Bible teaches, biblical theology teaches, He is the begotten Son, not the eternal Son. There were not two beings existing prior to the incarnation. Prior to the incarnation, it was one God who is invisible. It was the Holy Ghost that overshadowed Mary. A Trinitarian belief system would have a difficult time explaining even the virgin birth because it wasn't the Father that overshadowed her. It was the Holy Ghost. But when you understand that they are one God, uh, there is one God, then you understand the different functions of the roles. So let's do something together. And, and let's take a look at historical theology that falsely describes the Godhead in images and pictures. Can anybody tell me what's wrong with this picture? Not in a funny way. What's wrong with the picture? A couple of things that are wrong with the picture. Is this, is this the biblical theology or the Godhead that we embrace? Hmm? Why not? What's wrong with it? Hmm? Do you guys have any? You guys have any thoughts? And so, so let's say that let's say that you're in freshman year of college, and you are in. Mm, I don't know if you would take philosophy in the sec, or first year of college, but but let's just let's just imagine, and somehow this picture comes up in your college classroom, and and we want to talk about different philosophies, and so. Um, they want to talk about Christianity. They want to talk about Trinitarianism. And they would say, Lucas, would you please explain to us, um, is this a true picture of the Godhead? You don't think it is. Why not? I mean, we've got the Father on the right-hand side. You believe in the Father, don't you? You believe in one Lord? You believe that there's a Father? You believe that there's all one person? So, do you see the Father? Would you say that that would be an accurate interpretation of the Bible? Why not? Okay. When it, when it refers to uh, God the Father and then the Son of God, that's two distinct statements there. So how would you reconcile that? So right now, it's critical, right now, it's critical to have a scriptural answer. Opinions fly out the window right now. What one verse of scripture would debunk this picture? Hmm? Close, good, very good, Lucas. He said, John 10, 30, I and my father are one. That's close. That's close. But here's what they might say to you. Well, absolutely, you're right, Lucas. And by the way, just as husband and wife are two distinct people, but when they marry, they become one flesh. So they are considered one. Husband and wife are considered one. But they're still two distinct visible beings. So the Godhead is much like um, a husband and a wife when they get married. And so they are, they are one in union, but two distinct persons. 
how would you respond to that? Can anyone, can anyone quote a scripture that would debunk the picture of a visible father? Hmm? I'm looking for a verse. Which one? Okay, so this is a good one. That's not the one I had in mind, but that's a good one. So we'll just pile up some scriptures. John 4, 24. John 4, 24 says what? God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what are we saying by saying that God is a spirit? What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 24, verse 49? He said, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh nor bones. So based on biblical theology, Luke 24, 39, John 4, 24, how would we debunk that? Automatically we see, due to biblical theology, this is a picture of historical theology. But due to biblical theology, we see that the Father, or God, is a spirit. A spirit hath not flesh nor bones. What does John 1.18 say? No man has seen at any time. What does Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 say? Jesus is the express image of the invisible. So there's no way you can draw a human being to depict the Father because He is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. What does Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 say? Jesus is the express image of whom? The invisible God. And so automatically we know. Okay, so, so the next question about the Holy Spirit. I mean, really? <laughs> it's okay to laugh. The, the Holy Spirit is a dove? So, so let's go. Next picture. These are pictures that you say, so Brother McLaughlin, why are you showing this? Let me tell you why I'm showing this. For you that are older, this may not mean a whole lot to you. But, but you take some young ones that they're constantly exposed to pictures of false doctrine. And you lodge that in your mind where there are three distinct these aren't even persons because, because one is a dove, and so, but two distinct persons. Okay, so let's run with two distinct persons. If you see that picture over and over and over and over and over again, then when you read the Bible in your mind when it says God the Father and Jesus Christ who was the Son of God, you're thinking in terms of two pictures. This is based off of historical theology, not biblical theology. Next picture. These are all pictures. I just pulled them off the internet. But, but this is everything. When you, when you type in Godhead, this is what they pull up. This is what you pull up. So while I don't enjoy showing images of perhaps, you know, what the Godhead is like and what eternity will be like, probably the next one I would say is the most accurate. Let's go. It's just one. It's one throne and one God. Let's talk about that for a minute. 
the scripture from Old Testament to New Testament speaks only of one God. There is never a mention of two gods. There is never a mention of three gods. Nor is there a mention of two thrones. There is never a mention of three thrones. When we get to heaven, we're going to see one throne and one God who is sitting on that throne and His name is Jesus Christ. Biblical theology tells us, Revelation 4, 2, and immediately I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne singular was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. That one who will forever sit on the throne is the name Jesus and that is that name that you had called over you in baptism. That throne represents authority. The name Jesus on the throne has the authority to remit sins and remove sins because the invisible became visible to shed blood, Hebrews 9:22, so that your sins could be washed away. We don't have to figure out which one in the Godhead we want to pray to. Do we pray to the Father about this? Do we pray to the Son about this? Do we pray to the Holy Spirit about this? When you're praying to Jesus, you get the fullness of the Godhead. That's why we baptize in one name, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh Savior. Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The only way you can behold the glory of the invisible is through the humanity. Woo! Because Paul said to Timothy, you can't look at Him and live. He is a light, a powerful light that no man can approach and live. That's why that light had to be put in the human body so that it was almost shrouded or distorted. You look at that body and that's why the Bible says that he was the glory of God. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice, okay, so it looks like two right there. Anytime you see two or three or plurality in the Scripture, you have to think in terms of, is this, is this plurality speaking of His role as Father, Son, or Spirit, not different distinct persons in the Godhead? So right here, God, okay, so we're talking Father. Lamb, we're talking Redeemer. But remember, these are two modes or two roles of the one God. You, normally, if you'll just keep reading the passage, it'll explain itself. If you'll just keep, so, so let's keep reading. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. What does it say? What? So you have God and the Lamb, but it's His servants shall do what? Serve him, singular. Verse 4, and they shall... Ah, why is that? God, John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only way that you can see him is in that visible form as the Lamb of God, the person of Jesus Christ, who will be the only one forever sitting on the throne. It's his face, singular. Woo! Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending, the first and the last, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. There's only one Almighty. He's the Father of the Old Testament. 
His son in the New Testament, he will forever be the King of kings and the Lord of lords on one throne and one God, and his name is one. Jesus. The power of his name. Jesus. We're not dividing him. We're not breaking him up into separate people. He is one. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and was received up into glory. Jesus. They shall see his face and his name, singular, shall be in their foreheads. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah 9 and 6. That's our primary scripture that we're studying from. Zechariah 14 and 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. What day are we talking about? We're talking about the millennial reign. He's prophesying and he's talking about the 1,000 year reign. Notice in the 1,000 year reign that there's going to be one king. Why does, it, why does he have to be king? Because there was a prophecy given to David in the Davidic covenant that David would always have a king, that David would always have a throne, and there would always be one ruling his kingdom. Jesus Christ, notice Matthew, I know, I know, it may bore you to read the genealogy, but really, if you'll study the genealogy, you'll learn a lot about doctrine. Matthew 1, 1. Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. Why did he have to be the seed of David? The Davidic throne in the millennial reign, it will be the king ruling forever. Notice that king will rule over all the earth in the 1,000 year reign. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. How do you take that passage and reconcile it with three distinct persons that they're talking about in the commentaries? Let's continue on. Let's just look at scripture. I quoted these two, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. I quoted 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy. The late W.A. Criswell said this. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas years ago. He was past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He described the deity of Christ in terms identical to the oneness position in his expository sermons on Revelation. And I quote Chriswell. Let me enlarge my screen so I can see the fonts. I often wonder at people who think that in heaven they are going to see three gods. If you ever see three gods, then what the Mohammedan says about you is true. And what the Jewish neighbor says about you is true. You are not a monotheist, you are a polytheist. You believe in a multiplication of gods, plural. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We know God as our Father, we know God as our Savior, and we know God by His Spirit in our hearts. But there are not three gods. The true Christian is a monotheist. There is one God. I and my Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. This is Chriswell, this is not me. The Lord God is he that speaks. It is he that John saw when he turned around. The only God you will ever see is the Lord God whom John saw in the vision of the lampstands. The only God you will ever ever feel is the Lord God's spirit in your heart. The only God there is is the great father of us all. The one Lord God, Christ. In the Old Testament, we call him Jehovah. In the New Testament or New Covenant, we call him Jesus. The one great God standing in authority and in judgment and in judicial dignity and his churches here today watching over us. I saw one like a great mystical symbol unto the Son of Man. What Chriswell is even saying is if you study the Bible, you are only going to arrive at one God on the throne throughout eternity. If that's what eternity says to us, let's live what's going to be in eternity right now. It's Jesus Christ as one God on the throne. This one God in the Old Testament who was Jehovah declared that there is no other God. He declared by himself to be the only Savior and that there is no other Savior but himself. I'm going to give you several scriptures right now. I'm just going to read biblical theology to you. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. That debunks a preexistent Christ right there. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You're my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44 and 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So, so someone would pause right there in that phrase. Remember, a text out of context is a pretext. You have to continue reading the scripture. Ah, look, right there, Isaiah 44, 6. There's the Lord, the King, and there's his Redeemer. There's two. Keep reading. I am the first, I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Revelation 1.17. This is speaking of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. In the Old Testament, this was Jehovah declaring this. Revelation 1.17. Jesus is declaring to be the first and the last. There's only one first and one last. There's one God who fulfills this, and his name is Jesus. Isaiah 44 and 8, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and I have declared it? You even are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So then how can there be three gods? 
Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that, from, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 21 through 23. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Right here in Isaiah, he's talking about Jehovah. But in Philippians, we see that it's recognizing Jesus to be the one that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. There is no contradiction there between the Old Testament God and New Testament God because he's one and the same. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Hosea 13, 4. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Who's, who's speaking here? This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. Can anyone quote Luke chapter 2 verse 11? So notice and compare the passages. Hosea 13.4 said, There is no Savior beside me. This is Jehovah. Luke 2 and 11 says, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Well, if Jehovah is the only Savior according to Hosea, and Luke said Jesus Christ is the Savior... How can there be two? If there are two, then we have a contradiction in who the Savior is. But when we recognize Jehovah of the Old Testament is Savior, becomes Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Savior, no contradiction, we know who He is. So we sing the song, let me tell you who Jesus is. Woo! Somebody clap your hands and give Him praise. You got the truth. I said, you've got the truth. It's in you. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Oh, we need to give him praise. We need to lift him up high on his throne. There's power in his name. There's healing in his name. There's forgiveness of sins in his name. There's power to speak with new tongues in his name. There's power to cast out devils in his name. He's everlasting Father. Remain standing. If there's only one God, and this one God is the only Savior, where does that place any other belief that presents a plurality of gods? False belief. Unlike the two pictures of the visible persons in the dove. John tells us that no man has seen God at any time. John 1, 18, no man 
has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The only way to declare the invisible God and the glory of God is through the humanity of Christ. Paul says God is invisible and that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? God is truly one, and I quote David K. Bernard, who offers a brilliant insight, or offers brilliant insight into the biblical theology of one God over and against historical theology and Trinitarianism. Bernard states, there are five specific ways in which the biblical doctrine of Christian monotheism differs from the presently existing doctrine of Trinitarianism. Number one, the Bible does not speak of an eternally existing God the Son. The Son only refers to the incarnation. Number two, the phrase three persons in one God is inaccurate because there is no distinction of persons in God. If persons indicates a plurality of personalities, wills, minds, beings, or visible bodies, then it is incorrect because God is one being with one personality, will and mind, respectively. He has one visible body, the glorified human body of Jesus Christ. Number three, the term three persons is incorrect because there is no essential threeness about God. The only number relevant to God in the Bible is one. He has many different roles, titles, manifestations, attributes. We cannot limit them to just three if we're talking about titles and attributes. Number four, Jesus is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. For Jesus is the revealed name of God in the New Testament. John 5, 43, Jesus said, and that was one of the scriptures that we read, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Matthew 1, 21, and a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, his name shall be called Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. So we know the name of the Son is Jesus. John 14, 26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. So we know spirit, it's another mode, another, another role, but the name is Jesus Christ. There's one name for one God who manifests himself, not just in three roles, but many roles, but three primary roles respective to the Godhead. Number five, Jesus is the incarnation of the fullness of God. He is the incarnation of the Father, the Word, the Spirit, Jehovah. Not just the incarnation of a person called God the Son. That's an extra biblical term or title. And I close with this quote from Frank Stagg, a Southern Baptist seminary professor who is now retired and nominally a Trinitarian. He stated this position well. This is what he says. Jesus Christ is God uniquely present in truly human life. But he is not a second God, nor one-third of God. The Word which became flesh was God, not the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is more than the second person of the Trinity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel does not mean the second person of the Trinity with us. Emmanuel is God with us. And we conclude tonight with Isaiah 7-4, Biblical Theology. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Matthew said, being interpreted, is God with us. Clearly, many scriptures say there's only one God, not one before him, after him, beside him, only one Savior. Isaiah declared that that baby in the manger that came, into this world, born a virgin, Jesus Christ is the Old Testament God, Emmanuel, with us. This season is not about what you're getting under a tree. This season is what heaven gave to earth in the plan of the remission of sins and the precious baptism of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Hallelujah. Somebody give him praise. And that everlasting Father has become your Prince of Peace. If he holds that much power, yes, he can walk into your life and become the Prince of Peace. If, you're, if you don't have the peace of God, Emmanuel doesn't have to, he doesn't have to change persons. He doesn't have to be another person to be the Prince of Peace. He can retain being the everlasting father and at the same time come into your chaotic world and give you peace when all of life is saying you should, you should be suicidal, you should be depressed, you should have a nervous breakdown, all of these things because of the earthly situations that we go through. But when Emmanuel becomes Prince of Peace, he said, peace I give you, not as the world giveth, give I you. He said, what you're looking for is not in this world. What you're looking for is out of this world. But what's out of this world came into this world so that you that are in the world can leave this world. It's the Prince of Peace. It's the Prince of Peace. Woo! My! My! Oh, let's give him praise tonight. Let's lift him up. Let's lift him up. Let's lift him high. There's power in his name. There's power in his name to get us through any difficulty that we are going through. Thank you so much for listening to the Upper Room Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope this episode not only encouraged you, but strengthened your faith today. If you want to stay connected with the church and the podcast, don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, Facebook at Calvary Pentecostal Church, and Instagram at Calvary Ulyss. That's Instagram at Calvary Ulyss and Facebook at Calvary Pentecostal Church. Or visit our website at calvaryulyss.org. That's Calvary. Ulysses.org.